Barna group. 51% of people in North America go to church. So this is a broad spectrum of people. 51% of people who go to church in North America are not familiar with what we call the famous passage of Scripture. Do you know what the name of this famous passage I'm going to speak about today? Let's find out. There's 11 men, and they've headed north out of Jerusalem. And they've been walking for a day or so. It's a hot, dusty trail. They've woven on the narrow path into the mountainous area, treacherous area around the city of Jericho. Not mountains as we understand it, but high, high hills. And the trail is very narrow, and if you slip on that trail, you're done. It's late April, and even though it's not uh, smoking hot like it typically is in the summer in Israel, where it's oven hot, it's hot enough that as you're walking, you're sweating. It's four or five days now after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death of him on the cross three days before that, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the most important events in the history of the world. And they're heading north towards the Galilee. They're Galileans, they're fishermen, they're tax collectors, people that were chosen about three years previously by Jesus to be his crew, to be his disciples, the Bible calls them, his leadership team. And post-resurrection, he says to them, he appears to them a number of times, and then in Jerusalem, the last time he speaks to them, he says, meet me at the mountain. Meet me at the mountain. And so they're making the journey which is between 60 to 90 miles, or about 95 to 145 kilometers north. And as they're walking along to the mountain, they're arguing. I'm just guessing about this, but if you know anything about these 11 guys, they always seem to be arguing when Jesus wasn't around. They head towards the south part of the Sea of Galilee, and they move to the southwest to the city of Tiberias. They would skirt the city of Tiberias because this is a Roman city and Jews do not go into a Roman city. They continue up towards the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go to. And we're not sure exactly which mountain it is. Might have been Mount Tabor. It's quite possibly not that one and quite possibly another mountain not far from the little village of the little fishing village of Capernaum, traditionally considered the little mountain where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see a picture of what it looks like from the Sermon on the Mount area. Do you see the beautiful landscape and the Sea of Galilee that he would have spoken to when he spoken to thousands upon thousands of people in that Matthew 5 through 7 sermon. 
They're waiting at the mountain, and they're excited, and they're wondering what Jesus has for them, when all of a sudden, he's just there. And he gives to them at that point the words that were given to his disciples, but also to us, words that for the last 2,000 years or so, Christians all over the world have read, have memorized many times, have pondered, have debated, have theorized about, and put into place and applied. But apparently these words now are not familiar to about 51% of people who go to church in North America, or at least they're not overly familiar with them. These are among the most important words that Jesus ever spoke. Famous last words. They might not literally have been his last words, but they were among his last words. Famous last words. And you know, when a loved one dies, we often ask, did they have any last words? Did they have anything to say at the end? And by this, we're thinking to ourselves, oftentimes people will look back over their life and they'll try to summarize the most important things that occurred in their life, the things that they've distilled down, the things that they really want you to know, the things you want them to remember, the things you want them to be changed and impacted by. Is there a guiding memory they want to impart? And these are those words commonly called the Great Commission. You might want to call them the cause. And I would suggest to you that these words are the basis for the primary way, the application of these words, the primary way that we make the world a better place. That lives are changed in a way that is unmistakable, in a way that's redemptive, in a way that changes their entire trajectory in life. And you know, in the church we talk, and there's more and more talk about social justice, and this is a good thing. It's a good thing to serve, it's a good thing to do. But we have to remember, and I'm afraid we're beginning to forget, that the primary mission that Jesus gave his followers is found in his famous last words. Primary mission. So if you have your Bible, turn with me or your device, open your device up to Matthew, the first book in the Newer Testament, Matthew chapter 28, last chapter of the book. We're going to begin reading in verse 16 through verse 20. And it says in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to the Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Even though they'd seen him several times, some of them are still kind of going, I can't believe he's really risen from the dead. Then Jesus said to them, came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus says, listen, in the time 
between my first coming during that long period, at least 2,000 years between when I first came and when I will come back, here are the things that I want you to be about, the primary things. This is the reason these words that people like Rachel are doing what she's doing. The motivation, if you don't believe these words, if you're not touched to the core by these words, your life doesn't get changed by these words. Four times in verses 18 through 20, the word all or a derivative of the word all is used. Two times in 18 and 19, and then he talks about everything in all ways. And he's saying, these words that I'm speaking have a permanent and universal validity to these truths. But he is also asking rhetorically, what is your part in this? Asking us very personally, what is your part in this? So let me reread verse 18 for a second. It says, all Jesus comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This word, all authority, these two words, all authority, is actually comes from a Greek word called exousia, which means delegated authority. And so Jesus is saying, I don't have only the ability to do these things, I have the right I've been delegated the right to do these things. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and it's been granted to me by my Father. Authority over people and over nations. Authority over everyone and everything they do or say. Authority over Satan. Authority over whatever you can think of or whatever you can name. And if, you, if you're old enough, you can think of the old song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Literally, this is what Jesus is saying. I have authority over all of this. There are no limits to this authority. He has authority over kings and over prime ministers and over presidents. He has authority over the American election, which is coming in just a few days. He has authority over COVID, which has changed our world. He has authority over what's happening in North Africa, in the Middle East, and in China, and in Russia. He is the King of Kings, and He is the Lord of Lords. And when you think about that, this is deeply encouraging in light of the frightening and uncertain times we find ourselves in. That we're not just cast aside, hoping for the best, we live under and we live empowered by the authority of Christ. And because of this authority, we have great courage to go, or at least we should, have great courage to go and fulfill this great commission from Jesus. So he rhetorically asks, what's your part? in this. Verse 19 in the first part of verse 20, he says, because I have this authority, you should be encouraged and to go. It says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey 
everything I've commanded you. In English, if you're looking at that, depending on the translation you have, you would look at that sentence and a half or so, and you would say it looks like there's four verbs in that verse and a half of Scripture. But in reality, in Koine Greek, in the Greek, the, the language that this was written in, there's only one verb in all that. One word that's, at, one verb rather, that's translated into two English words, make disciples. So this is the focus of all those words. And then the other three English translated words that look like verbs are actually participles that hang on or are dependent on or are fleshing out the idea of the verb itself. And so Jesus is saying that to them and he's saying to us, one thing above everything else, as I give you these last words, make disciples. This is the primary mission. Disciples who make disciples. This is why it's called the Great Commission. That you are to be the kind of person, when you are a follower of Jesus, that has been so transformed by that, and so grateful for what Jesus has done in your life. So grateful for all that he's, how he's touched you and changed you, that you're going, I want others to know about this. I want to be used by Christ to point others to Jesus. I want to pray for those people. I want to speak to them about Jesus when I have an opportunity to, that they would in turn give their life over to Christ. And I understand it's the Holy Spirit that comes and seals the deal in a person's life, but he uses us in this process. I want to see, I want to be involved in, and I give my life to seeing their life given to him as well. That they would, like me, confess their sin, because the Bible says every one of us has this sin problem. That they would confess their sin. That they would live in the richness of being forgiven by Jesus. This is an incredible place to be in life. To know that I'm not perfect. To know that I've made significant errors in judgment and sinful choices in my life. But because of Jesus, I'm cleansed and I'm forgiven. The Bible says that I'm holy because of that. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did. It tells me that I'm part of the family of God. It actually tells me I'm a saint. I want others to have this as well. And then to see them after they come in this relationship with him. Because one doesn't go without the other. To launch into becoming an active follower of Jesus that says, I don't totally get what this means, but I just lay my life down to you, Jesus. And I put you in charge of my life. And I pray that you'll just continue to shape me as I do life. That, that that authority that's being spoken about in verse 18 would be used through my life, that I'd be empowered by your Holy Spirit to serve and to live in a way that reflects you well, so that I can be part of repeating this cycle in other people's lives, because it's made such a difference to me that I would make disciples who would in turn make disciples. And the rhetorical question raises its head again. What is your part in this? And it's different for every person. It doesn't have to look like what my life looks like or what Rachel's life looks like. 
It looks different in each person's life. And Jesus uses us based on how he's gifted us and the place that he's put us in, the environment he's put us in, in life. You know, we make a big mistake if we believe that the world will just come to us. Just being here is not enough. It's important to have a presence, but just being here is not enough. The scripture makes it very clear we are to go and make disciples. We're to go everywhere. We're to go to all nations. And you know, it's such a wonderful thing. This is such a gift from God that the peoples, like we saw on the screen, is different peoples in our church who come from all different parts of the world. We're reading a scripture. It's such a wonderful thing that the world is coming to Canada. And they're coming here to work. They're coming here to go to school. They're coming here to live. This is an incredible gift from God. That God has given this opportunity that's really unprecedented in all of history. And as the nations come to Canada, we can lead them to Christ. We can model the things of Jesus in front of them. We can invite them into relationship with Christ. We can help disciple them. And then often, not always, but often, they go home to visit family. Or sometimes they'll go back to their original country. And they can live the Jesus life there. And they make this huge kingdom impact. Don't miss the significance of the nations coming to Canada. It is completely changing how we do ministry. It's a wonderful gift from God. But also equally clear in this scripture, and there's no ambiguity about it whatsoever, we are to go to them. The passage makes it absolutely crystal clear. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go to all the nations, this is incredibly shocking to them. And I'm going to suggest, even though we don't like to admit it, this is shocking to us too. See, they've been been raised all their life. And again, we don't like to admit to things like this, but they've been raised all their life to be prejudiced against other people groups to isolate themselves from people who are not of their race. They've been told all their life that they're part of a special group, and they're the only group that gets a special ticket towards a relationship with the God of the Bible. And they think they've got it made in the shade. And Jesus is saying to them, Jesus is saying to us, if you're going to be a follower of mine, give up your prejudices. Get over your small-minded ideas about the world. Cross over racial barriers. Cross over language barriers. Did you know that Rachel is learning Arabic right now? Well, she knows it quite well, but she's continuing to learn it because of the call God put in her life. Jesus is the Savior that's available to all the world. So they're coming here, but we need to go there. And we do this, he says, by the implementation of these three participles. We've talked about going. We go across the street to our neighbor, whoever that neighbor might be, or those people in the sphere of influence in our life. But we also go to other countries. We baptize them. It's no accident that the word 
And the idea of baptism comes in the place it does in the passage after the person makes a commitment to Christ where you're publicly identifying with Jesus. First of all, in your life, you give your life to him personally and privately, and then you publicly identify with him through the waters of baptism. This is one of the reasons we invite everyone who is a follower of Christ to do this, to follow the example of Jesus, to follow the example of Paul, to follow the example of every person that gives their life to Jesus in the New Testament. And someone says, well, Scott, my parents did something for me when I was a little baby or a little child. This is a good thing. You should commend your parents for this. They had your best interests in mind. They loved you, and they wanted you to have a relationship with God. And they were looking forward to that day when you would make that personal choice. Teach them to obey, he says everything that I've laid out for you. If we just produce intellectualized Christians, we have failed. If we just produced intellectual Christians that know the right answer, but don't put it into practice, we have failed massively. It was never, ever Jesus' intention for his followers to be passive pew-sitters or casual onlookers who have all the, oh, I've got the right answers, but I never put them into practice or I only put into practice the ones I'm comfortable with. If that's the kind of people we produce, we have failed. Each of us has a part to play for producing disciples who make disciples. Do you know what your part is? Because this leads to a spiritual multiplication that can become exponential, a church that reproduces itself through this unending, healthy cycle of spiritual reproduction. And then there's, then there's a great promise from Jesus. He begins by saying, listen, all authority has been given to me. Not only do I have the ability to do all this, I've been delegated the authority to do it. I'm charging you to be involved in it. And as you go do this, he says, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. As you do this, as you play your part, which takes courage to do, which means hardship at times. As you play your part, I will be with you always. I'll have your back. You'll be operating under my authority, through my empowerment, through the filling of my spirit. And I will be with you having your back until you take your last breath on this earth or until I return. And so his last words are among our first command. So what's your part in fulfilling what was so close? This is obviously close to the heart of Jesus. What's your part in fulfilling that which was the closest to the heart of Jesus? Well, let me just make some suggestions. But most importantly, you know, 
these are just some suggestions, but just ask Jesus, what would my part be? And as he leads you. But let me give you some practical examples. I'm going to call the first one a GC prayer list, a Great Commission prayer list. Pick two or three people that you are in relationship with or are in your sphere of influence that to the best of your knowledge don't know you, don't know Christ as Savior and Lord. And begin to pray for them regularly. Pray that Jesus would be revealed to them. Pray that, he would, that they would be drawn to him. Pray for opportunities for you to point them to Christ, either by the way you live or by the things that you say. Ask Jesus, how do you want me to live out the Jesus life in front of these two or three people? And then pray for two or three international workers. Pray for someone like Rachel. And as Aaron said earlier, there's communication she can give you or others. We have other IWs that are on the board out there in the lobby. Get information from them so you can pray specifically and on point. Nothing really happens in the kingdom apart from prayer. Secondly, we give. And uh, it's such an incredible privilege for me to say, Give sacrificially to missions. Give sacrificially to missions. So when you see the little envelope there in the, in the chair in front of you or that'll come up on the screen if you're watching online, if you look there, you see the section that says Global Advance. That's, that's how we partner apart from prayer with those that are serving in other parts of the country. That's how we support people like Rachel when we give liberally to that. And I encourage you to do that, to give sacrificially to that. And then finally, we go. And so really, locally here, how has God gifted you? And are you using those gifts that God has put in your life? Because you have a part to play. Maybe God is calling you to go to another country. Many people in our church have gone and served in other countries. Rick and Lori returned not long ago from serving in an overseas posting. We've sent many teams to different places in the world to serve. And really one of the prime, you know, apart from the very practical stuff they do there, I think one of the most important parts is God puts something in their heart to do. And he grows in them as they go, this heart for the world that he has, that Jesus loves every person in this world, that he wants a relationship with them. And when you go on some of these opportunities, it grows in your heart that God is a missions-minded God. Or maybe like Aaron said earlier in the service, you're a younger person here, and you're wondering what to do with your life, I invite you to listen to what God might be saying about this, because this is the most important cause in the world. You want to make the world a better place? You want to make people's lives changed in a way that's hard to put into words? Say yes to Jesus and say, I'll do whatever you want. And that might mean that he'll call you into full-time vocational ministry in some other country of the world. 
great way to spend your life. What a great way to spend your life. So I just say even to the parents that are here, have you prayed about your kid and said, man, I wouldn't like to see Junior live somewhere else in the world, but I'm willing. Whatever you want my child to do, or grandparents, to pray and say, I just release my grandkids to go and serve wherever it is God called them to serve. I know Rachel's parents, and I can guarantee you that many years ago, probably when she was first born, they prayed prayers like that. And God said, yeah, I'm going to take you up on that. Look at where she is now. What's my part in Jesus' famous